Welcome to the markets. Hello again, along with Max Armstrong. I'm Orion Samuelson with you to take our weekly look at market activity from Wall Street to the feedlots to the wheat fields. We do it every week and try to figure out what happened and why, but I'm not sure anybody can really get that done. The dateline is Friday, August 9 in Chicago. And the numbers, first of all, the Dow ended the day down 97 points, 26,280, much better than when it started at the opening this morning. The uh, S&P 500 down 19 points, 2918. The NASDAQ down 78 points at 7960. For the week, the Dow down three-quarters of a percent, the S&P 500 down nearly half a percent, and the NASDAQ down a little more than half a percent. So let's take a look at what happened today as we ended this trading week, because it was another volatile trading day on Wall Street. Stocks fell today following the renewed jitters over the U.S.-China trade war. Will that ever end? Capping a week of trading that saw big swings and high volume, the Wall Street numbers fell into a pattern. Down one day, up the next day, down the next... Well, anyway, every other day they were up or down. President Trump said the United States and China were pursuing trade talks, but... He said he's not ready to make a deal that fanned fears over the impact of the trade war on the global economy. The president also said the United States would continue to gotten more interest on the part of traders. That, in turn, has led to even higher volume. And when you get moves like this and reversals, it brings a lot of high-frequency traders in and short-term traders. Shares of chip makers and other tariff-sensitive technology companies fell today. The Philadelphia Semiconductor Index down 1.8%. Uber Technologies dropped 6.8% today after the ride-hailing company reported, get this, a record loss for the quarter of $5.2 billion and revenue that fell short of Wall Street expectations. Going on to uh, other uh, numbers for today and this week, oil prices rose more than a dollar a barrel today, supported by a drop in European inventories and OPEC output cuts, despite the International Energy Agency reporting that demand growth is at its lowest since the financial crisis of 2008. Brent crude futures gained $1.15 today, settling at $58.53 a barrel, and U.S. crude was up $1.96 a barrel, and it ended the day at uh, $54.50 a barrel. But for the week, Brent lost more than 5%. U.S. crude down about 2%. Markets weighed down by an unexpected build in the U.S. crude stockpiles and, of course, the trade war concerns that also 
play a role in just about every market we're dealing with. Price of gold steadied today on course for their best week in over three years. Dovish central banks escalating U.S.-China trade tensions and negative debt yields around the globe kept prices close to $1,500 an ounce. Spot gold down a tenth of a percent at $1,498.97 per ounce after it broke through $1,500 for the first time since April 3rd of 2013. That happened earlier this week. So now that we've looked back, let's look ahead and what's ahead for the week in the stock market. Walmart will report its second quarter earnings on Thursday. The retailer expected to post strong sales growth despite increasing pressure from the tariffs imposed on imports from China. Tuesday, the Labor Department expected to show consumer price index index likely edged up three-tenths of a percent in July after having risen just a tenth of a percent in June, and it is expected to have increased 1.7% year-on-year in July compared to 1.6% in June. The Commerce Department on Thursday, scheduled to show retail sales, likely went up three-tenths of a percent in July after an increase of four-tenths of a percent in June. Friday, we're expected to get from the Commerce Department housing starts for July. They say probably increased to 1,259,000 units. Then getting back to some of the earnings reports that will be coming out this next week. NVIDIA Corporation expected to uh, post a decline in second quarter revenue as the chip designer continues to struggle with slowing sales to data centers and weak demand for its gaming chips. Department store operator Macy's expected to post a drop in second quarter profit on Wednesday. It spent heavily to build up its online business and to grow its off-price business. All eyes, however, will be on the company's comments on the latest round of tariffs. Thursday, J.C. Penney Company likely to post its fourth quarter consecutive drop in same-store sales in its second quarter as it continues to battle decreasing store traffic and fierce online competition. Apparel and accessories retailer Tapestry expected to report higher revenue in its fourth quarter on Thursday, boosted by sales of its coach handbags. Investors will also focus on any updates of the progress the company has made on fixing its millennial-focused Kate Spade brand, which has seen sales suffer in recent months due to some of its out-of-touch fashion designs. Machinery maker Deeren Company will release its third quarter results Friday. The company expected to report higher quarterly earnings, but investors will look for a report on the impact of the escalating trade war with China 
and bad weather this spring on farm equipment demand. I'll talk more about that deer situation later in this program. Cisco Systems expected to report a rise in fourth quarter revenue on Wednesday as the network gear maker benefits from growth in its cybersecurity and application software. Thursday, chip equipment maker Applied Materials expected to post a decline in third quarter revenue as chip makers continue to worry about the China-U.S. trade situation. The world's largest meatpacker, JBS, on Wednesday will release its second quarter results, which are expected to continue to reflect strong export performance driven by Chinese demand in the wake of the deadly African swine fever hog disease that has disrupted food production in that key Chinese market. And Embraer expected to release second quarter results on Wednesday, as investor scrutiny of the Brazilian plane-maker's loss-making executive and defense units increases. Occidental Petroleum on Monday likely to address investors at Entercom's The Oil and Gas Conference in Denver, Colorado. It's good to see an old friend in the studio. We look at the business card and we see the same name but a different affiliation. Grain Cycles. The firm, the consultant is none other than Dale Durkholz. Yeah, I uh, officially retired from corporate life back in the middle of June and uh, using Grain Cycles. It's an old handle I'd used on Twitter. And uh, right now I'm in the process of setting up a blog on WordPress under the same name as well. So going to continue to do consulting, do some speaking, whatever the case. So folks would follow you, best follow you through Twitter then? Uh, They can go to Twitter, but shortly they can go over to the blog on WordPress. There will be a link from Twitter back to WordPress anyway. That's what I figured. Well, now that we have that out of the way, let's talk about what uh, the markets are looking at here. We sure don't hear much about China anymore, do we? Markets are not at all interested, it appears, right now. We've gotten tired of the topic. The markets are more interested in China, you might think, but it's really on a different twist. You know, the whole trade issue has gone to the background. I think people finally got into the mode that, you know, this is going to be a long-term process to get resolved and this isn't going to unfold rather quickly after everything broke down last spring. But I think the big issue with China right now really has to do with African swine fever and understanding that, the impact it's going to have on their meat demand, the impact it's going to have on their meat imports and what residually that means to oilseed demand in other places to the world to feed livestock that it's going to end up producing meat to ship to China. So it's a a lot different picture. So the demand for grains will still be there. The demand for soybeans will still be there, but it will be a little more spread out in the world, you're saying. Yeah, I think that's really the key. And, you know, it really comes back into the game game and the insight here of trying to understand African swine fever and what impact it is going to have on changing world trade flows. You know, because the situation in China, because of the nature of their pork industry per se, still having a lot of small producers involved in it, means that this may be a process that unfolds for quite a long time. And the example I give people, it took Spain and Portugal 30 years to 
eradicate African swine fever. I mean, there's been talk here that this is a five-year thing, that maybe they'll be rebuilding in five years in China. You you question that. Well, they could restart to rebuild hog herds, but the question becomes, you know, how successful are it going to be because you have to put a lot of uh, restrictions in place to maintain your environment, to keep your, your own production facility somewhat clean so that you don't keep re-exposing yourself to it at this point in time. So that's really an unknown, especially with a country like China that has an industry that doesn't have the environmental standards even like we do and, and the controls like we have in the major hog producing units here in the U.S. What will those backyard uh, pork producers in China be doing in the interim? Will they shift into something else? That we don't know at this point. That's going to be an interesting twist. The other twist, China's always been a big hog producer, a big pork consumer. Do we see their taste change? Do they go and rotate away from pork and start consuming more chicken, maybe even more beef? So there's a lot of moving parts to this whole situation in China. When does that near-term hole in protein uh, really show up in China. Are we just weeks away from that? I've heard a lot of people talking about August. What's your feeling on you know, that? You that, know, that's that's really one thing that a lot of people are really trying to look at. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've had a lot of hogs slaughtered so over in China, so we've had a lot of this meat end up going through their, their retail system, so to speak. But the other thing that really is a little bit more cloudy in China is how much pork or other meats do they have in storage at this point. You know, we've had a lot of stories about containers of meat being shipped to China and those containers not coming back. And what's happened is those containers have been used as a storage unit. So with this at this point in time, we really don't have a good feel for how much meat is in storage and what that means. But I think we're probably weeks, maybe two, three months away. And that's really the key. You know, every month people look at the um, the, the soybean import numbers in China. I think the key is start watching those meat import numbers and they come out at the same time. Did the U.S. pork industry jump the gun a little bit here? We're, we're seeing uh, significantly higher production, uh, higher than the industry had been expecting, at least yeah, analysts had expected. Well, in one sense, yeah, maybe because we had that big surge in prices, you know, back late winter and into the beginning of spring, which we fell off of quite hard. But the other ingredient there is the economics of hog production was so good. So why would you not be expanding, especially when you looked at those high-priced fall-winter hog futures and, and we had cheap grain at the time? You could lock in your production all the way out into early 2020 at profitable levels. So, yeah, they may have jumped the gun. Yeah, we're paying the price for it or have a little bit here, and we may still a little bit into the fall. But, you know, again, you go back and things will find a balance. The question is how much pork will China buy from the U.S.? And we always have to remember today there's still a 62% tariff on U.S. pork into China. Speaking of locking in 2020 production, as you referred to it there, and shifting commodities a little bit, and the grains, how have producers done at that? Uh, 2020 per se, I don't know that a lot of people have really looked at it. I think people have kind of dabbled in it a little bit. I don't think aggressively. I think people are still in the mode of trying to figure out what to do with the 19 crop. And some of the 18 crop. Yeah, I was going to say, if you go out to the eastern Corn Belt in particular, or if you go out to South Dakota, where 18 corn became 19 corn because they didn't get a lot of acres in the ground. But, you know, I don't think there's been a lot of focus. I think more it's been really the attention on the 19. What's a good price? When do I sell it? How do I manage this? What really is the picture? And we still don't know. Hearkening back to 
rallies of the past, and there is such a tendency to go back to those analogous years. We want to talk about years when there has been a market rally. We want to talk about 83, 88, and so on. This rally has had a very, very different feel to it, hasn't it? I mean, we haven't seen an up-limit move followed by an up-limit move followed by an up-limit move, as was the case in some of those drought weather markets. You know, the, the, the year that I keep going back to I, that I think still is real important, and there's been a lot of lessons, and what's happened here so far this summer hasn't been a surprise, was 93. Right. Because we had the flood. It came a month later, but you had a similar environment. But in 93, we had a big surge. Markets peaked out when the weather peaked out around the first part of July, and they fell hard into the latter part of July. But the point is, with the corn, we actually put our high in in January of 94. It was a grinder all the way through the fall, and I think that's still a, a situation that might unfold going forward. Beans are going to be a little bit different story, I think. They were back in 93. But I think with corn, we, we really don't have a good feel for acreage yet, and we really, we've had a lot of people out here putting some numbers on yield. They're trying to put on it, and I'm going, don't get ahead of the game because we've still got a whole growing season to go yet. That reference to back in 94, was that after the final production numbers for 93 came in 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 that January report? That actually came with the January report. I don't remember if it was the day of, day after, you know, but somewhere within a real tight time frame of the January 94 report. But if you you go back and you look at the corn back in uh, uh, 1993, I think the USDA on their Projected yield in May was like 122. They dropped it down to 118 for June and July. The first actual production report in August was 116. We ended up, it was either at 101, 102 at the end. So it was this realization through the fall harvest itself, the crop isn't there. And I think that's what we got to kind of think about going forward. This time around, USDA didn't hesitate to lop off 10 bushels off of that corn yield with the... the, uh assumptions plugged in in June. They were a little more cautious then with the soybeans taking off a bushel in July, correct? Uh, Yeah, they took off a bushel in July. And I think it was really just the acknowledgement there, you know, corn, we knew we got it in the ground late. Corn, we knew we really had shortened up the growing season. And we knew that uh, coming out of the ground, we weren't going to emerge real fast nor, you know, get ahead of the game very quickly. With beans, we still weren't really late, so you still had potential for a good crop. And, you know, starting where they did at 49 and a half, you know, then with the realization of the planting problems as we went through June, I think that's why they dropped another bushel off. But I'd be hesitant going much lower at this point. But they didn't jump right in and change acreage. Uh, that's <laughs> that's really a long story. You know, I mean, when you look at the USD, and we've got to understand the people that put together the supply demands and the people that actually do the estimating national ag statistics are two different groups. Right. Um, you know, they did cut corn acreage in June. They got burnt by it because, you know, we ended up with the measurement uh, on the June 28 report, agree or disagree, that said farmers still intended to plant a lot of corn and what a lot of people forgot about those price ratios between corn and beans and those places where corn planting was going okay, farmers are going, you know, these other people are really having a tr- problem. And so they kept planting corn. And so we we probably ended up with more acres than than people felt back in June itself, although I think the 91.7 is probably still going to come down. In the minds of producers, uh, the credibility of USDA took a hit there. A lot of complaining about it. Well, we saw that in the social media anyway. 
When 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 you when you look at USDA though, especially when you look at National Ag Statistics, the guy that's the group that puts out hard estimates, guess where their input comes from? Farmers. So farmers only have to go up and look in the mirror and go, hmm, gee, <laughs> what did I do here? Because that's really the basis for all their estimating process. You know, WASD, they were basically just using models based on historical data. And so that's a little bit different of a game and really isn't hard evidence in the field versus NAS. They actually measure hard evidence coming from the country. But the market sure places a lot of emphasis on those WASD numbers, even though those are assumptions that are plugged in there. And I think that's what people need to do. They need to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more realistic, you know, that those really are estimates, you know, and they're based upon models, whether you look at the supply side or the demand side, either one. You know, you got some hard evidence in there, but it's not like what the guys at NAS do that gave us the acreage report at the end of June or will start giving us the production reports because they actually work with data coming from the producer or the field. Pollination of the corn crop. That's what we always watch so closely in determining the corn yield. When is the bulk of the pollination on this 2019 corn crop, which will be the most critical 10 to 14 day period for this crop? Oh, the next month. <laughs> yeah, that's that's truth, you know, because you it know, is hard you, to nail you, down, though, isn't it? It, it is, you know, and, but you do hit on a key valid point at this juncture. You know, I mean, we get the weekly reports come out every Monday, have crop condition and crop progress. People are looking at the condition. I think still too much. I think this year you got to be careful because the, the most important aspect of the crop, corn or beans, either one, is the progress and where we're at. Because with corn, we were 17% pollinated on the one we had last Monday. That's about two weeks behind normal. So what you're doing here, if you have a normal fall, is that you're compressing the time you can put kernels in the year or fill kernels. So we really need to pay more attention to the progress numbers, I think, this year than we do the condition ratings. How much is hanging out there in question in terms of getting it to maturity on, on the corn crop? What, have you been able to, to get your arms around what percentage of this corn crop is really going to be in jeopardy of finishing? I think a lot of it is. But again, that goes back into a normal year. Uh, a lot of people are going, what if we have an early frost? And I'm going, yeah, I don't want to play that game because early frosts tend to happen more when we have dry soils. And this year we don't have dry soils in a, in a major way anyway, although we are drying out in some areas that I'm aware. And we're going to dry out this week with the temperatures, but next week we get a little better. Um, but the question becomes in. Do we have a normal end of the growing season, and that's what you got to count on, or do we end up with a year like 2009, for example, where well, what seemed like Christmas Day before we ever had a frost, you know? So we've got to work with the weather as we go through time because we can't look at weather into the fall other than we know where normal is, and it does put the crop at risk. The August crop report numbers coming up. It's a Monday release this time, as I recall. How big a deal will that be? And then before the market immediately then says, hey, whoop, let's check the forecast. We see this often with, with summer crop estimates. You know, the, the August report's even more interesting this year because this year we have no plot, no data that's going to become from the uh, plots in the country. Not the till September. yield sampling, right. 
So it's purely going to be a farmer survey. So it's going to be a matter of what farmers think about the crop. And the one thing I've started to look at a little bit here, and I really haven't defined well yet, looking at those crop condition rating numbers and trying to come up, how do they compare to the August USDA crop estimate? I wish I had the breakdown of their two models, but I don't. Nobody does. Uh, But I think it's going to be a matter of what did we learn there? And it's going to be what farmers think. Always good to talk to you, sir. We appreciate your input. Dale Durkholz, Grain Cycles. Grain Cycles. Watch for him. He tweets. In other news involving agriculture this week, Beyond Meat has put away plans to enter Japan. According to an investor based in Japan, to focus more on the U.S. market. Japanese trading house Mitsui & Company, which bought a small stake in Beyond Meat in 2016, said it previously planned to partner with the U.S. company to sell plant-based meat alternatives in Japan, but that was no longer such a project. He said... We look forward to bringing our revolutionary products to more countries across Asia, including Japan. That's according to Chuck Muth, who is the chief growth officer for Beyond Meat. A Mitsui spokeswoman declined to give a reason for the change, adding that future expansion in Japan was still possible. And, of course, Beyond Meat, which is based in El Segundo, California, sells pea-based burgers and sausages at restaurants and in supermarkets. Its shares have surged around 550% since their IPO in May. On expectations for growing demand for meat alternatives, and that demand will probably grow after the UN committee announcement this week, saying that we've got to change our farming ways and our eating habits for the good of the planet. Back to the China-U.S. trade situation. President Trump said today he was not ready to make a trade deal with China and had decided that the United States would not do business with Chinese telecoms giant Huawei Technologies for the time being. He was talking to reporters at the White House, and he also questioned into... uh, his conversation whether another round of scheduled talks would take place in early September. He said, we're going to do very well with China. We're talking with China. We're not ready to make a deal, but we'll see what happens. Let me get back to that John Deere story in a little more detail. When China announced this week it had stopped buying U.S. agricultural products and might impose additional tariffs on farm shipments from America, John Deere and John Deere dealers around the country braced themselves for another blow to the business that sells farm equipment. There was a John Deere dealer in Salem, Wisconsin, selling planters, combines, and tractors. He's grappling with the declining sales and higher levels of inventories as farmers have continued to put off equipment purchases in the wake of the rain-delayed planting in the Midwest and the ongoing, for a year now, China-U.S. trade disagreement. 
So um, it's going to be a tough time and uh, continuing for suppliers of farm equipment, crop protection chemicals, seeds, and any other business or dealer lineup that provides services to farmers. Going to have a challenging time. As we look at the grain trade today, let's check those prices where we'll be starting the market on Monday. And uh, the wheat market today saw the uh, December wheat contract up one and three quarters, ending at 501 and a half. December corn down a penny at 417 and three quarters. November soybeans up 10 cents at 891 and three quarters. And livestock producers, um, they probably were mixed on the close today. The October lean hog contract down a dollar, $66.97 a hundredweight. The October live cattle contract ended just a nickel higher at $106.75 a hundredweight. The October feeder cattle contract down a dollar sixty-five, and it ended the week. We'll start trading Monday at $138.25 a hundredweight. Speaking of Monday, a big report day. We'll get the results of the second inventory of planted acres and uh, the other numbers that will be watched carefully by the trade and should be watched carefully by you as a producer. Thank you very much for joining us. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson saying thank you for joining us on The Markets. 